Hello, Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into some of the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And uh, we've got a really good one today. We are going to talk about the six overtime game, the famous UConn versus Syracuse Big East Tournament quarterfinal game from 2009. And uh, unfortunately, this is one of the rare games we'll cover that UConn lost. But uh, six overtimes, I mean, this is widely considered one of the best college basketball games ever played. And uh, for good reason. Um, And having rewatched it recently, I'd forgotten just how awesome this game was and how, uh, frankly, how irritating it is that UConn lost. Uh, as we'll discuss, it's, it's actually kind of crazy that UConn didn't win this game. Um, so joining me today is uh, Kevin Duffy. Uh, Kevin was uh, my first boss at the Daily Campus, a longtime UConn basketball beat writer, uh, both for the Daily Campus and for the Connecticut Post, um, and uh, went on to have a successful run covering the uh, New England Patriots for Mass Live and for the Boston Herald. Kevin, how's it going? Going well, Mac. Appreciate you having me on. Um, I'm sure this is probably the only loss you'll be covering uh but this one was certainly a game that i think no one will ever forget probably 50 years from now uconn fans will still be talking about this game yeah to be honest the, with the, with this game the fact that winning and losing was almost besides the point just because of how you know memorable it was how it played out the way you know the way it got to six overtimes in the first place there's so much happened in this game that's just easy to forget and you know I think, as we'll discuss, the fact that UConn lost ultimately didn't really matter in the long run. This uh, 2008-2009 team still made the Final Four. You know, they kind of, you know, Syracuse kind of did what they were going to do. They didn't win the Big East, uh, you know, title. They they ended up losing in the final, I think. So, um, yeah, so you wanted to talk to you about this game because you had the, the pleasure of covering this game, um, you know, when you were a senior at UConn. And uh, first things first, I mean, why don't we just start with that? I mean, what was it like to be in Madison Square Garden that night? Oh, it was pretty awesome. And it was awesome just to cover, I mean, six overtimes aside, just to, you know, be, be there as a student and be covering it. Um, we were on spring break, so the Daily Campus didn't even have a paper. So I think I was just writing for online. So it was kind of, I mean, the Daily Campus is low pressure to start with, but it was really low pressure because we didn't even have deadlines. So I was kind of unaffected by you know, how late the game ran and, and all that. So I was able to pretty much just sit back and enjoy it. And I mean, I did write something afterward, but it wasn't like I was stressing on deadline like a lot of other writers were. Yeah, no, that's good. Cause this game, I mean, it's funny that I think the Big East Conference must have been thinking their lucky stars that this was the last game of the day because this was a very, very long game. A total of three hours and 46 minutes in real time. The game tips off at 9.36, doesn't end until 1.22. Um, I mean, that's like unheard of in college basketball. So, I mean, if this had been the first game of the day, they would have screwed up the whole rest of their schedule. But, um, man, just like, yeah, just, it just, it's crazy the way it played out. So we'll we'll obviously kind of run through the full game, but it was a very close game all throughout regulation. Uh, UConn, it's easy to forget, UConn actually made a pretty impressive comeback in the final minutes of regulation. Uh, they were trailing by seven with like four minutes left and they were down, I, I want to say, I'll, I'll look at the exact uh, margin in a bit, but like four, at least four or five in the last minute and a half. They come back and basically tie it at the buzzer. And then you have what, honestly was one of the greatest shots in college basketball history with uh, Eric Devendorf kind of emulating Tate George's the shot and uh, it ends up just barely staying on his finger when the buzzer sounded so that's how we end up going to overtime and then I had forgotten about this too but UConn led for all of the overtimes until the very end they did not trail until the sixth overtime when they finally kind of ran out of gas which is you know crazy kind of crazy to imagine um, just, yeah, I mean, in this particular game, uh, what, what stood out to you the most? Just, uh, I know you, you re- rewatched it recently and, uh, you know, we're there obviously was what, what kind of, what, what did, what did you remember about this game mostly? Same thing for, same thing really as you, I hadn't, so it's been, I mean, it's been 11 years. So I, I really forgot many of the details, many of the important details too. Um, until rewatching it, I, I totally forgot that UConn, was up in every single overtime until the six. Like Syracuse didn't have a lead until the six overtime. Uh, it rewatching it just stood out how <laughs> no, they should have won the game clearly, like five or six separate times, and they didn't. So that part kind of 
for, for whatever reason, just faded from my memory. The, really, the, the memories I have from being there are certainly the Diebendorf shot because it happened, like, right in front of me. We were sitting um, right in the, in the front row there, uh, which is not where the Daily Campus writers normally sit. We, I think, so I was there with Kevin Meacham, who was our sports columnist and assistant managing editor, um, and I think we had pretty bad seats for the first half. We were up pretty high where the student papers normally are. And the way it is at the Big East tournament, um, you know, they're, they're beat writers from every team. So the front row could have two Providence writers, two West Virginia writers, a couple of UConn writers, and so on. So for that game, because it was the last game, probably a lot of the, the writers from the, the game that had preceded it were back in the press room writing. So there were a few open spots in the front row. Um, and I think at halftime, Meacham and I were looking around and we saw two next to each other and we decided to make a run for it. And we went and sat there. And I, I if I recall correctly, like I, I think for the first couple minutes, I was kind of nervous, like someone was going to come and kick us out. But once we settled in there for the start of the second half and like five minutes had passed, I was pretty sure we would be able to stay there for the rest of the game. Of course, little did I know that at that point, we, you know, we'd end up sitting there for another two and a half hours. But um, it was pretty sweet because we didn't normally, especially for tournament games, we didn't have those kind of seats. And so to be able to, to come up with these two, right, uh, right front row for, for that entire uh, overtime session was pretty special. Yeah, I was actually thinking, so you, fam- you famously show up on the broadcast at a pretty key moment, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But just um, <laughs> w- when when I was watching that, I saw that I was th- that was that did cross my mind, like, wait a second, how did they get in that spot? Because uh, I had the pleasure of covering the Big East tournament two years later for the, the Kemba Walker run. But um, when for us, when I was there, we got to we, we got in like it wasn't the front row exactly, but it was like the lower level, like kind of courtside for the DePaul game, the first game. And then after that, for Georgetown and Pitt and onwards, they kicked us up to the auxiliary press box way up there where I'm sure they probably stashed you guys. So, yeah, when I saw you guys there, I was like thinking like, well, hold on a second. Like it, that was only two years ago. Like how, how did the heck did they pull that off? And yeah, when you just said like, oh, yeah, we just snuck down. It's like, well, now maybe I should have done that. Like, I guess. Yeah, yeah I guess until they kick you out. I, I had. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how people thought like the other some of the other like professional UConn writers were actually behind us. So I'm sure they were they were probably like, OK, what, what are these kids doing here? Like. I mean, they should be the ones sneaking down to uh, to sit in those seats, not us. But somehow we ended up staying there for the whole game. Well, that's for the whole second half and overtime. Well, that's pretty. That's pretty awesome. I, I'm pretty jealous of that. Not not gonna lie. Um, so, well, at, before we dive right in, let's kind of uh, talk big picture. So, this game, uh, you, this kind of came towards the end of what was, you know, become one of the more underrated UConn seasons ever. Uh, this 2008-2009 team was a wagon, and it was the last UConn team that was truly dominant, wire to wire. Uh, they go into this game uh, as the number four ranked team in the country, and they're 27 and three. They pretty much have rolled through everybody they've played other than Pitt's, uh, you know, Pitt. And, um, you know, this is a Syracuse is a pretty solid team, too. They're ranked number 20. They're uh, 24 and eight. And, um, you know, this game, uh, you know, had big stakes for UConn, who had not won a game in the Big East tournament, I believe, since 2005. So none of the players on the roster had ever won a Big East tournament game. And uh, UConn had kind of unfinished business with Syracuse, too. They had lost to them in, you know, the Jerry McNamara 2006 year and then the next year in 07, too. So, you know, th- look, thinking back, this game had pretty high stakes. And, um, you know, going out of the gate, it was, uh, you know, pretty close pretty much all the way throughout. Uh, I don't think either team ever led by more than seven points. And, you know, those leads didn't usually last long. And by the time it was over, I mean, it was literally a battle of attrition. I mean, pretty much the only reason Syracuse ended up winning at the end was because, you know, more of UConn's key players had fouled out and everybody was just kind of toast at that point. Um, So, um, yeah, do you want to just, I guess, dive into the first half and uh, we'll kind of just kind of run through it since this game is so long? Sure. Yeah, I don't have too much from the first half uh, in terms of I, I, when I said I rewatched it. I I meant I rewatched the end of regulation overtime. I I couldn't. I did not do the first half, so I don't have too many observations from the first half. I do remember Stanley Robinson had a couple uh, pretty nice dunks, and this was I think this was one of Stanley's better games, um, maybe his best game. I think um, in a in a UConn uniform, um, he was pretty efficient. 
I think what did he finish with? I don't have the box score up, but twenty something points. I believe, shot pretty well. I believe it was um, twenty eight points. Yeah. Yeah, twenty eight points. So I think from the first half, like his individual performance would stand out. But um, you you watch the whole thing, right? Yeah. You, you yeah. Watch the, the whole thing. Yeah. There, there isn't else. there isn't really that much to say in the first half. I mean, it was a uh, pretty much uh, kind of the the the. The, uh, the long and the short of it was that Kemba had a couple of sweet alley-oops to Stanley Robinson. Like I think he had like two. Uh, there was an awesome play where Gavin Edwards gets this big block, fast break going down the other way, and then you know Robinson has a windmill dunk, which was pretty awesome and got the you know Bill Raftery to freak out. Um, you know there was a yeah Syracuse at one point has like a seven and nothing run to pull ahead by five, but you know that that was it didn't last very long. U- UConn ends up going into the halftime up uh, thirty-seven to thirty-four. And, um, you know, kind of at this point, you're just sort of thinking, okay, this is good. This is a solid game. UConn's playing well. Syracuse is showing up. Because the last time, these two teams actually had played once before. And um, it was a much different game. UConn pretty much smoked them. Uh, I think it was at Gamble. I want to say 63-49 was the final. But that game was costly because that's the game Jerome Dyson went down. And I think you, you, you and I can probably agree that if Jerome Dyson plays this game, it's a much, much, much different outcome. Yeah, he made a big difference, and it was like it was interesting thinking back about the 09 team because I don't think a lot of it's just not a team that's like discussed much um, in UConn history because they they went to the Final Four but they didn't win. Um, it's it can't it's not going to ever rank up there with the legendary 11 and 14 runs. Um, it, nor was it as dominant as 03, 04, uh, or 99. So it's kind of like a team that, and it's also I think it's not. People always talk about like the 06 team with Rudy Gay and Denon Brown, Rashad Anderson, Marcus Williams as being maybe the most talented that didn't get it done. I don't think the 09 team has that. I don't think people are quite as disappointed with the final outcome for the 09 team. And that might be uh, one, because they made the final four and two, because Dyson got hurt and that kind of changed. It changed a lot for them because they, they had to play, well, they had to play Craig Austrian much more as a third guard. And that wasn't, I think, ultimately looking back at, at this game and and some of, you know, just remembering that team, it was a very, very well-balanced starting lineup with A.J. Price, Dyson, Stanley Robinson, Adrian, and Hashim Thabit. Probably, that's probably the best starting five in the country that year. And then Kemba off the bench. Um, Kemba became, you know, throughout his freshman year, you could see glimpses of the player he would become but he certainly was not that yet he really couldn't shoot as a freshman and that um that was detriment when he had to do that i think in this this uh 6 ot game he was over seven from three and rewatching a couple of them were not even close like not touching the rim like clanking off the backboard um so i think they didn't have great depth on the bench and when dyson went out um they lost they lost uh, you know the, the they, they elevated Austria to play more minutes and they lost the guy who really could make things happen in transition on the break. Like he was so athletic, uh, him and Kemba kind of had that, that element of athleticism and, you know, could, could get out and run on people. And AJ price was a great player, but that wasn't necessarily his game. And same thing with Craig Austria. So they, they really lost some of their athleticism in the backcourt without Dyson. And who knows how it would have turned out. I mean, the team at North Carolina in 09 was probably better than UConn, but they were right there with them. I think, you know, those were probably the two most talented teams in the 2008-2009 season. Yeah, I think with Dyson, they they probably beat Michigan State. Uh, They they definitely win this game. UN's, uh, that final, UNC versus UConn that that year, that would have been epic. Um, It's a real shame. It would have been a better game than Michigan State gave uh, North Carolina, but yeah, so I mean, just thinking, just strictly with this game, I mean, you know, this game, UConn had so many opportunities to pull away and kind of finish the job. Like all you need is maybe one more three to fall, make make one more free throw, just make one more basket, just anything. And you know, the guard play in this game was just is horrible. Uh, you know, Kemba <laughs> Kemba may have played his worst game at UConn this game. Craig Ostry was, I mean. He, he was put in a position he probably shouldn't have been, but he still played 45 minutes and he went like two for 13 on including two for 10 from three. That's not what yeah. you want. Uh, AJ price. Like he had the, like the raw numbers, but he wasn't very efficient. It wasn't really his best game either. You know, just 
yeah, it's just a, a, a strange game for sure. And for the backcourt in particular. Yeah, they shot, those guards shot five for 30 from three. So it's, that's uh, Price, Kemba, and, and Craig Oshry. So it's kind of a miracle it even went to six overtimes with that kind of shooting. Yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot of miraculous things happened in this game, both good and bad, if we're being honest. Um, yeah, so I guess just to kind of keep keep rolling with this. So second half kind of plays out kind of similar to the first half in a lot of ways. UConn pulls ahead by six within the first minute. Uh, there's a great, uh, you know, another A.J. Price to Stanley Robinson alley-oop. Robinson was awesome in this game. He, he just was he was he hit he was hitting shots. He was, you know, doing Stanley Robinson dunk, th- you know, dunk stuff. Um, you know, it was, it was efficient. He was kind of doing it all. Uh, UConn maintains their lead for a little while. Eventually, Syracuse makes a run. They they go, uh, I believe, seven to nothing run around the eight minute mark. Uh, Andy Rotten's hit a three. Um, Craig Ostry hit one of his two threes to kind of to tie it up again. They kind of go back and forth for a few minutes, and then with about four minutes to play, um, UConn finds themselves down sixty four fifty seven. So that's sort of when I, I'd forgotten about this whole sequence. Like UConn actually was in a position where they were in a little bit of trouble at the end of regulation, which is you know. When when you think about this game, you, you don't really remember that aspect of it, do you? No, no. It, the whole thing is, seriously, it's kind of a blur. I'm happy I went back and rewatched it. I hadn't watched it in 11 years. I mean, I was there. I, I witnessed it. It was amazing in person, and I wrote about it, but I didn't, I've never rewatched it and was not even aware it was, the full game is available on YouTube. There, like, you can just go on YouTube and watch it for three hours. So, um, yeah, I, I was not... I forgot that UConn got in that much trouble that late, and and I also forgot that they had so many chances to put it away in each of the first five overtimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. So a couple of key sequences at the end of regulation before things started getting weird. So uh, UConn answers Syracuse with a seven to nothing run of their own over the last say I, I guess between it would have been about two minutes between the the four and two minute marks. Uh, the beat has a putback. Stanley Robinson has a you know two uh, he has a, a one for two free throw. Uh, but then the beat gets a rebound on the miss. He gets fouled, goes two for two, and then uh, you know Sticks has a has a basket to tie it up. Uh, and then yeah, with the next um, like I don't know forty seconds or so, uh, the beat gets called for his fourth foul, and uh, Syracuse pulls up by four again. So now we have uh, you know it's a you know minute and a half left, and UConn's basically it's like okay, we got to do something now, or this is going to be trouble. And uh, you got Austri hits a three, Devendorf goes two for two. The beat hits a basket. Anjanot, uh, whatever that guy's name was, he hits one. So that gives UConn a chance to tie it. So it's 71-69 with 27 seconds left. And then Kemba does the only really good thing he does all game. Um, Austri puts up a late shot right before the buzzer. He misses. The beat keeps it alive, kind of tips it to Kemba, and he just goes up for the second chance basket, and he ties it up with 1.1 seconds left. And, um, yeah, at that point it's like, oh, okay, great. We're going overtime. This is going to be awesome. And then, uh, yeah, then what happened next was maybe one of the most preposterous sequences ever. You got (laughs) 1.1 seconds left. Paul Harris takes the cross court inbounds pass, just chucks it all the way down court. Gavin Edwards crucially gets just a fingertip on the ball. So the clock starts and, uh, it bounces right into Devendorf's hands. He goes up and he just swishes a three at the buzzer. And then just jumps up on the scores table, literally right in front of you. And uh, why don't you why don't you tell us kind of what happened then, and just how that all played out in your from your vantage point? Yeah, well, he so he hits it, and um, immediately as the ball goes through the net, like the kind of the there's one camera angle that they show when they show the replay, and it, the camera is kind of. Uh, widening it's the this this shot is widening so you can see some of the people on press row and as soon as the ball hits the net you see my my head just drop into my hands just totally devastated and not like showing no regard for you're supposed to like not cheer on press row you're not supposed to really show any kind of um emotion or favoritism you're not supposed to be a fan on press row but here i am my senior year um spring semester i want uconn to win the big east title i'm and, and this is how they're going to go out with Eric Devendorf hitting a buzzer beater. So I just can't clearly can't contain myself. And, um, people have, you know, you have, to, it's not like that obvious. I'm thankfully in like the kind of like the side of the shot. So it's not 
the whole world didn't see me react that way. But uh, people who know me have joked over the years when they have watched that game. Um, they always look for that part uh, when Dimondorf hits it. So I'm I'm just not, I, I you know, a, a professional journalist would not have done that. And I, <laughs> it's funny. I'm kind of embarrassed by it because I think Kevin Meacham sitting next to me, who was a pro, just didn't did not react that same way. Um, kind of immature on my part, but. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't help myself, man. I just. I really wanted them to win that game, and I. I was just absolutely stunned uh, that that's how I, I thought it would end. It was. Uh, it was. I'm not gonna lie. It was really funny, but honestly, it was pretty relatable too. Because uh, when that shot went in, I feel like you pretty much were reacting for all of us. Because like I was. Uh, you know, I was at my. Uh, I was at home. Uh, you know, on spring break, uh, watching this game, and when that thing went in, like so for a little context this is my first UConn season ever really um my freshman year before that I wasn't you know I, I wasn't really that into college basketball really at all so you know this for me this for like the five minutes before the they overturned the call on replay this was like my first big gut punch moment where I'm just like oh, oh my god what what just happened <laughs> there's he there's no way that that just happened like it was you know definitely and of course, Eric Devendorf of all people. I mean, you you put up a list of like all like the, the the most hateable UConn villains of all time. I mean, he's he's high on the list for you know people of a certain generation for sure. He really is. People hate. I never had a problem with. I don't know. I never really got into like hating opposing players. I didn't hate Eric Devendorf at all. Um, it was more like it was just I was just stunned and devastated, man. I just I wanted to. This was like my spring. I never went away for spring break. I wanted to spend spring break. At Madison Square Garden, covering UConn's uh, run to the to the Big East Championship, and this was going to be a one and done for me. So I, I was beside myself. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Like I, at the time, I was, you know, Eric Devendorf was just like the, the the most hateable guy ever. Watching this game, I actually got to say, he he was a, he that guy could play. He he was a you know kind of a fun player to watch if you're not invested in just like you know. The whole, you know, the whole heat of the moment type thing. But yeah, at the time it was it was so bad. Um, but luckily, or maybe I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, um, you know, Gavin Edwards tipping the ball just barely turned out to be crucial because it's just barely still in uh, Devendorf's hands when the clock hits zero. So after a pretty long replay, they overturned the call. And uh, little did we know, we were only halfway done. Still, uh, like almost an hour and a half of game time left to play, uh, or real time, I should say. But yeah, just oh man, uh, what was going through your mind when they overturned it? Did you have any inkling that it might happen? I no. Well, I guess I don't. I don't remember how I felt at the time. I think I was still recovering from the, the shock. But I think watching Calhoun's reaction. Like Calhoun was kind of, you could tell he was waiting to see what was going to happen. Like basically immediately from from the moment the shot went in, he didn't. I think he he knew there was a decent chance that it was after the buzzer. So the longer they reviewed it, I mean it was really really close. But uh, watching this game back, like they they must have reviewed the thing for like five minutes or more than that. And I think the longer they reviewed it, the more likely it was that it was going to be overturned. So. Um, in the end, I, I guess I wasn't surprised that that was the result. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, once, but after the replay was pretty clear. So after I saw enough replays, I was like, okay, I think this this looks like it's going to have a good outcome. So, but I mean, in a, in retrospect, man, it it is kind of wild to think like that was basically the Tate George shot. So if that thing stood, I mean, that would have been quite literally one of the greatest shots in college basketball history. And now it's like kind of still is in a weird way, but it's just like a weird footnote on what proved to be a legendary game for an entirely different reason. Like, yeah, I, I think it makes it even more. Well, I don't know, because it's a moment that like if that game had ended right there in that moment, no one really would remember that game 10 years down the road. I mean, they might like hardcore Syracuse fans might remember that as being like, you know, one of the, the best single shots in in their biggest tournament history. But it wouldn't be a game that's known in college basketball history so that's probably the most that's the most memorable single moment from one of the most memorable what turned out to be one of the most memorable games in college basketball history so i think it going it not counting and it going to six ot's might actually be like make that shot like live on longer if that makes any sense yeah yeah definitely 
So, um, yeah. Anyway, so let's do the, let's do the overtimes. Uh, there's, yeah, it, it's funny to rewatch these overtimes. They do all more or less play out the same way. Um, you know, UConn is either, play, UConn leads in all five of the first, you know, first five overtimes. Uh, they're playing, they did not trail until the sixth one. And they had shots to win at the buzzer in the first, second, uh, third, and the fifth ones. Somehow they missed all of them. And, you know, in the third overtime in particular, they're up by six late in the, the in the overtime period. And, you know, when I was just rewatching it, I was just like, how on earth did they lose this game? There's no way like that they lose this game. Now, obviously, in, you know, having knowing the outcome, I know they do. But it's like this. It's insane to me that they that they didn't win in any of the overtimes. But certain the third, especially like that was just yeah, just insane. The, the first I agree. The first two, it's like they didn't have that much separation down the, I mean they got out to a lead but then like in the first one you had what are they up they're up two or up one when Stanley Robinson goes one for two at the line with like 14 seconds left and uh Cuse comes down and Johnny Flynn gets the beat in the air and dishes it to Rick Jackson for a dunk to tie it so like that was a two-point game late um second overtime I actually didn't have much from the second overtime in terms of like wild plays but the third overtime they're up 97-91 with two minutes left. And then they really a couple turnovers hurt them. Like A.J. Price uh, had a turnover on a pass to Adrian, and Adrian missed two free throws. Um, and then A.J. missed – like actually they missed three free throws in a row down the stretch. And then Andy Routens, uh, trailing 98-95, hits the three to tie it. So that, that was the one where you first start to think like, Oh God, like they can't, if they can't close it out here, like they've just given Syracuse too many chances. Yeah. And it really almost came to bite him at the end of the fourth overtime. But so in the first three though, UConn does have a distinct advantage in their personnel because, uh, right at the very beginning of the first, uh, Syracuse's on that whoever that guy is fouls out. Um, and yeah, I think UConn has all their starters until the third when Robinson finally fouls out and he's sort of the first, uh, you know, so he finishes with 28 points and, you know, the fact that he was kind of absent from the rest of this game kind of makes you forget just how good he was in this game. He was awesome. But, you know, he, he's the first to go. Uh, Syracuse lost uh, uh, Onuaku in the second. And, um, yeah, at the so at the end of the first two overtimes, Kemba has shots at the buzzer and he misses them both. The first one was terrible. Just like he tried to jump over somebody like takes like a. It looks like he tried to like take a three while like doing some sort of scorpion kick, you know, like yeah, some like sort of soccer weird, move. Like pump, right? It was it was it was terrible. Um, and then the second one, it was a little bit of a well, it was a it was like the the Gordon Hayward shot at the end of the Duke National Championship game, kind of. It was like a half court heave. Didn't really have much of a chance. He he actually almost made it, which was pretty crazy. Um, but it wasn't really the look he wanted. Um, yeah. So then you know, third overtime, you know, like we just said, you know, UConn leads by six uh, twice uh, late. And, um, yeah, there's just a whole cluster, you know, a whole cluster at the end. Uh, at the like Price has a, a three to win pretty late. You know, Adrian gets the rebound and then he puts up a shot that misses. And that's, that was the, that was the shot. Like, man, like, you know, he has, he, he makes that shot all the time and he, he couldn't make that twice in this game. Yeah. They, yeah. I mean, they, they, that's what you said before they had chances at the end of, I mean, not only were they up a lot, but in many of those overtimes, they actually got the last shot too. And some of the looks were better than others, but certainly a couple were were makeable shots that just did not go in. And, and it's not only those; it's like the free throws too. Um, they were eleven for twenty-two in regulation from the line, and thirteen for twenty in overtime. And as I said, like in the at the end of the third, they're up ninety-seven, ninety-five. Um, or no, excuse, who missed? Yeah, sorry. Uh, Adrian, yeah, Adrian misses two free throws in a row, up 97-95. They get a stop. Then A.J. Price misses the front end of two free throws, up 97-95. So if they had just made – so they got one for four in that stretch. If they had gone two for four, that game's over. Yeah. It wasn't a good free throw shooting game for UConn at all. Uh, in fact, actually, it wasn't for Syracuse until overtime. And then once they get to overtime, Syracuse makes 88% of their, their free throws all of a sudden. That was really kind of the difference. I mean, you know, if Syracuse yeah. misses one or two of those, if UConn makes one one or two more, then that's, you know, that's that. there's your ball game. But 
It's because Johnny Flynn was the guy shooting him in, in the late overtime, so that's why. Yeah, he, he makes 16 for 16 for the game. I mean, I, I you know, he, he had the, he was kind of the Iron Man for Syracuse, but, you know, the, the, the free throws was really the most important thing. I mean, he, he, I don't know, I thought he was, I remembered him being better in this game. Uh, and then, like, when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, I don't remember Johnny Flynn doing that much. And then you look at the, you know, fifth overtime, he's like, oh, wait, how many free throws has he made? Oh, geez, okay. So that's that. That's the point <laughs> yeah. where you realize that, like... He was like, pretty good. He, he was better than I than I remembered in this game. Cause his box score's not great. His, I mean, he was 9 for 24 from the field. But he... And we'll talk about it in the when we talk about the fourth, fifth, and sixth overtimes. But I thought he totally controlled the game in all of those OTs. He's like... A, a very underappreciated uh, Big East player, kind of, kind of in the same vein as the beat because he ended up being a bust in the NBA. So, I mean, people outside of Syracuse fans, people, no one, no basketball fans have probably thought about Johnny Flynn for ten years. But he was very Chris Paul esque, I thought, in college. Just had complete control of the game, um, drove by guys with ease, but never looked like he was moving that fast. Like he just. But he was able to get by everyone. He was always under control. Um, good decision maker, better athlete than he got credit for. Uh, he was he was a really, really, really good college point guard. Yeah, this game really uh, has not aged well in terms of like the guys who you thought would be good pros versus who turned out to be good pros. But you know, yeah, between he and the B, they were they were awesome, and they were both awesome awesome in this game. Um, so the fourth overtime though is where UConn starts to really run into trouble. Uh, Thabit, uh, finally fouls out. He had his, had his fourth foul late in regulation and he wound up basically lasting another 17 minutes and 32 seconds of game clock before he fouls out, which, you know, for a center to go that long without fouling is pretty impressive. Um, you know, Thabit was uh, pretty good at staying out of foul trouble, but even still, you, you know, when you're in that you know, when you have four fouls, it's it's you're playing with fire. So the fact that he was able to last as long as he did was pretty crazy. Oh yeah, definitely. Because you you get four fouls, you also have a target on your back. Like they're gonna try to drive down the lane and get you in there and draw that fifth on you. So yeah, he was good at it. He he only fouled out. I think he fouled out three times his senior year or his junior year, um, and that was one of them. And obviously that game, like he fouled out in the fourth overtime. So like that has an asterisk next to it because like that was basically two and a half games that he played without um, fouling out. So yeah, he was really, he, he, um, you know, he timed everything so well. He, he moved well. He, he didn't ever really put himself in a terrible position uh, to, to get in foul trouble. And that's, I mean, it's probably a little easier when you're seventh grade and you don't have to really <laughs> jump that much to block someone's shot. But I always thought he had great, instinct and great feel uh to block shots and avoid getting in foul trouble while doing so yeah no he was great and actually it's funny you know you talk about him having a target on his back literally the possession before he fouls out he uh drew a charge on rick jackson and fouled him out so you know he he was kind of holding his ground and uh you know kind of took basically took somebody with him right before he ended up uh going but once he comes out that think of the call that that he fell out on i thought it was kind of questionable like they're both him and paul harris are both going for the rebound and he kind of he pushes harris a little bit and harris might have sold it um i don't think it was like a slam dunk like very obvious foul call yeah it was you know it was one of those ones that you see that calls like that in college basketball all the time so it wasn't really that egregious just unfortunate but it was inevitable he was gonna foul out if this game kept going any longer than it did so yeah, um, and him leaving was now presents a problem for UConn. So they they're now without their starting center and their starting small forward, and uh, Jeff Adrian, and you know he's got fouls trouble of his own to deal with. You know, meanwhile uh, Syracuse still has um, Paul Harris. They still got you know most of their you know they still got a couple of guys who can come off the bench, and you know their their front court's getting uh you know they're they're losing guys too, but. You know, Thabit was the one guy who they had no answer for. And once he comes out, you basically have to play Gavin Edwards and Jeff Adrian at center. Neither of those guys are that tall, really. And uh, that that causes a problem. But luckily, uh, Paul Harris needed apparently needed a few minutes to adjust because you and I, we're going to talk about how good he was in this game. And he, he's basically the reason Syracuse wins at the end. But in this fourth overtime, he was a whole, he was a hot mess. He, 
has at one point three chances to hit an easy basket right around the hoop, and he blows all three of them. And that would have put them up. That would have given them the lead. Uh, UConn and Syracuse would, were tied 102-102 at that point with about three minutes left. And then right at the end, uh, basically right at the buzzer, he gets a, a two shots to win, like just right under the basket, and he blows them both. And you know, watching that in real time, I was like, you know, it's a miracle he missed those shots. Like now you're talking about good and bad miracles. This was finally a, a depending on your point of view, this was this was a miracle that the game continued here because those were as easy a basket as you can imagine. He blew them both. Yeah, he should have finished. I, you got to give some credit. I think Adrian may have gotten a piece of the second one. Adrian and. Gavin Edwards and Kemba's kind of in there too, not jumping, but he's like kind of bothering um, Paul Harris. Adrian may have gotten a piece of the second one uh, right before the buzzer. So that was good hustle and good defense by UConn. Um, but I think the I think the fourth OT, although Syracuse didn't put it away because Harris did miss those layups at the buzzer, the fourth OT is where you could really see it starting to shift because without the beat, it was a totally different game. The first, like the very first possession that the beat comes out, um, the next defensive possession for UConn, Johnny Flynn just drives right down the lane, right at Gavin Edwards, and gets him in the air, draws some contact, and finishes with a layup. Um, and then I think Devendorf had one similar, just right down the lane. Nobody's, you know, nobody's there to protect the rim. Um, like Adrian, Adrian can block shots at times. Same for Gavin Edwards. They're both pretty long for like Adrian's a long six, six Gavin Edwards is a pretty lanky six, eight, six, nine, but uh, nowhere near the rim protectors that the beat uh, was. And really for probably a lot of the game, Johnny Flynn, I mean, Johnny Flynn can get to that spot basically whenever he wants, because he's, he's just so good with the ball on uh, so good uh, at driving to the basket, but he was probably a little hesitant to, to get all the way to the rim against the beat because You've got Johnny Flynn at 5'10", 5'11", against the beat. That's really not, <laughs> probably not a high percentage uh, finish for Johnny Flynn there. So there were probably times throughout the game that Johnny Flynn opted to take like a 10, 11 foot floater or maybe jump and then dish it out. So once the beat comes out, Flynn can go back to doing what he does best, which is getting to the basket and finishing around there. Yeah, and you know, you really saw them get more aggressive after that. Uh, fifth overtime, despite you know the now the the problem personnel wise that UConn's dealing with, this was a, a pretty good period for them. They it was a close period throughout. Uh, they were you know not, neither team pulled ahead by much more than four. I think uh, we lose Eric Devendorf. He fouls out early in the fifth overtime. Uh, Gavin Edwards fouls out for UConn. So you know now we've got like you know a pretty uh, Syracuse is playing a walk on at this point. Uh, I think Scotty Harrelson is uh, Scotty Harrelson play, comes in he, has a pretty big shot. Yeah, he he has a uh, gives him the lead uh 110 108 with 34 seconds left. Um Johnny Johnny Flynn draws a foul 2 for 2 and then uh yeah, right at the end of the right at the end of the fifth overtime, AJ Price for 3 misses. Adrian rebounds, puts another shot up at the buzzer, misses that one. That was it. I mean, if, if God, could you? What? What? How legendary would that be if Adrian had made that one, the buzzer beater oh, yeah. to win in the fifth it's overtime? Funny. Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a game that still qualifies as like a legendary UConn game, even though they didn't win. I mean, if Adrian hits a buzzer beater there, which I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, he had was it kind of like a turnaround on the baseline? Yeah, he, off an offensive rebound. Yeah, he grabs the offensive rebound, spins around, and just kind of puts up like a ten or fifteen footer. It was a, a shot he's probably made a hundred, you know, tons oh, yeah. of times yeah, in his that, career. That was like a makeable. There were a couple they that were kind of desperation shots uh, at the buzzer throughout overtimes, but that was a very makeable one for Adrian. And that obviously would have made this game like so much, you know, exponentially more legendary uh, from the UConn perspective. But this was, I think in the fifth, you started to, I mean, clearly everyone was exhausted by this point, but now in the fifth, they're like so exhausted that you're watching the game and you're like wondering how they're even going to finish. I, watching AJ Price at the end of the fourth going into the fifth, like he looked physically in pain just sitting on the bench. Like this guy hadn't come out. Like, I think he played the, uh, every minute in the overtimes before fouling out and obviously played most of regulation too. Cambo looked absolutely gassed at times in the, in the fifth overtime. And now because guys are fouling out, it's getting to the point where it's almost like a three on three game in terms of like each team having legitimate scholarship players on the floor um 
because just guys started fouling out. Like Syracuse fouled out, I think four four or five guys in this game. So UConn at in the fifth, you're looking at like their three core players are AJ. Kemba Walker and Jeff Adrian, and Syracuse has Johnny Flynn, Paul Harris, and Andy Routens. Um, and and after that, it's kind of like I mean, you've got Scotty Harrelson playing minutes. Austria is out there and is a competent player, but he's you know he's not someone who's going to win you a game down the stretch. Um, so it almost became like, like how I viewed it, like three on three between the three best players left on the court for each team. Yeah, and it was a, the, a bit of a matchup problem. And, you know, I think in the sixth overtime, we saw it right away. So Syracuse, uh, coming out of the gate, finally takes the lead uh, on an Andy Routens three to start things off. Uh, A.J. Price turns it over. Paul Harris gets go, goes for two. Now it's a five-point game. A.J. Price miss. Uh, a whole bunch of missed threes on both sides. And then this is really the, the capper. Paul Harris uh, gets a... Uh, a basket and one to uh, put an eight, eight to nothing Syracuse run. And now it's a one eighteen, uh, one ten with two and a half minutes left. And this is the point where you're like, okay, this is, this is probably not going to go UConn's way. Yeah. No, I think just even at the start of the six, like it Routens comes out, bangs that three. And then, then you have, they, they put Donnell Beverly in for Harrelson, I believe. And Beverly is guarding Paul Harris. And that's just, that's a total mismatch, and Paul Harris just takes advantage of him right away and goes to the basket for an easy layup. The, UConn was just pretty out, man, at this point, and um, they got they were exhausted. Like AJ Price, just he made a lot of a lot of big plays throughout the game, but so much of the offensive uh, load was on his shoulders, and eventually it just became too much. And once they got down by, what they get down by five? five like in the first like minute or so it just became it became very difficult for them to make a comeback at that point yeah and it got even worse once price fouled out that happened with about a minute left they were they were pretty much already toast at that point anyway but still that if there was any moment where you knew it's like okay this is definitely not going to happen it's the when when you lose price i mean now you really i mean you know you have you have bad kemba you have scotty harrelson you have Danelle beverly you have uh jeff adrian and uh, who the hell knows some you know so I it's it was it was not what you wanted for sure. And then there's pretty much just Syracuse kind of seals the game at the line and your final score, 127 to 117. And um, yeah, that's kind of what you got there, huh? Yeah, this one. So I'm sure for most of your podcasts, like you can actually bang through the play by play pretty quick. But this one, there's just a, a lot to cover <laughs> with that game. Um, wild, wild game. Don't think we'll ever see another one like that. Another six OT game in a in like a, a very competitive conference between two really highly ranked teams. UConn was third at the time. I think Syracuse was in the teens. Um, so those were, I mean, that, that's just something you you see maybe once every fifty years or so. Yeah, I mean, the closest thing I can think of would probably be that UConn Syracuse, uh, you know, American Conference tournament game where Jalen Adams had like the the full court heave. But, you know, even that, like, you know, that was, you know, the, the arena was like half full, if that, you know, it was you know, neither of those teams were as good as either of these teams were. But still, I mean, yeah, it, it's the fact that it was the circumstances that it was just made it just so special and just so much. It elevated it to, you know, literally the people were just saying right at the time, it's like this, this was one of the greatest college basketball games ever played. And, um, oh, yeah. and you're right. The, the, it, it being in Madison Square Garden made a huge difference, too. The, 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 there's nothing better in college basketball than the Big East tournament at Madison Square Garden. It's just the, it's the best, the best week ever. If you're a huge college basketball fan from Connecticut, like that's the highlight of the year going to MSG uh, to watch UConn play. I cannot wait for them to go back next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be pretty sweet. Yeah. I got to get tickets. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, well, let's, um, why don't we just kind of touch on a few things that stood out? Cause, uh, you know, obviously we've covered kind of a lot already, but a couple of things that stood out to me, it's just so weird to watch Kemba Walker play basketball in this game. And, you know, it's almost easy to forget that before his junior year, he was kind of, you know, just okay. You know, he was a, he was a solid quality player who had good games, but he wasn't, you know, the best player in the country, like he eventually became. So in this game, you know, you're watching Kemba Walker and, you know, your, your brain, you're like, oh yeah, look, Kemba's going to, you know, lead them to victory. And then he plays 52 minutes or whatever he played and hits scores eight points and is generally terrible. <laughs> it's, it's like weird to see this. Like, what, like, am I like, what, what am I hallucinating here? What's going on? No. Yeah. It, it is interesting. Cause 
he was the best player in the country as a junior, and he's been an, an amazing pro for 10 years, so you don't think about like how far he came. But when he was a freshman, even though he was a very high recruit, he was one of, I think, probably one of the best recruits that Calhoun ever had. Um, and you could see why he was really dynamic with the ball. He, you know, he was a phenomenal ball handler, great athlete, great creator, but he just could not shoot. And that, it, it, that if you, if you're a guard and you can't make a three, it just puts such limitations on your game. And Kemba shot in the twenties. He shot, I think 27% from three, his freshman year, um, and so he just he was very limited like you could, and he wasn't the primary ball handler either because AJ Price was there so if he's playing off ball and he's not a guy who you can rely on to make open jump shots then there's really only so much he's going to be able to do to impact the game and i think you saw that pretty well that was exemplified in the Syracuse game then i think later in the 09 season for Kemba in the elite 8 against Missouri if you remember that game Kemba, Kemba had 23 points in that game and absolutely dominated. And I think that's when you saw the special kind of player he could become. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, you saw flashes all throughout, but just in this game in particular, it was just a little alarming to just be like, oh, wow, oh, yeah, that's right. Kemba wasn't always a god. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, do you do you have anything kind of along those lines, anything that stood out to you? Um, no, not really. It just it was, it was really cool to, to rewatch that team because – I mean, I loved that team when I was a senior. It was, that was, I couldn't imagine like covering a, a more fun team at any point in my career. Cause I, I loved watching them play. I thought they were awesome. Um, really well-balanced team. One of the best in the country. Uh, I loved the way AJ came back from his ACL and turned out to be one of the great point guards in the country. And Hashim was just an utterly dominant college player. And you saw that in this game and I think people forget probably how good he actually was because his NBA career didn't really pan out. But, I mean, he, he was just fantastic to watch and affected the game in so many ways. Uh, teams were terrified to shoot in the lane against him, and, and that just it made it so difficult for, for teams to, to play against UConn and to play the way they normally play. So I think just the you know being able to go back and – and rewatch that team play, even though this was a, a loss, and uh, and it wasn't it certainly wasn't like the uh, one of the better games AJ Price played. It was just cool to kind of remember um, what legendary players those two were. Yeah, I, I I had a real treat watching Hashim Thabit. You know, he was a you know, like I said, this was my the the team that I kind of you know made me fall in love with UConn basketball and Thabit. I had forgotten just how big he was. He, he looks like one of those guys like you play like NBA 2K or whatever and you create a player and you just turn the size all the way up and then he gets out on the court and he just looks like a like a like an ogre or something playing with a bunch of children. It was like there's a fun, there's a shot in this game of like him walking down the court with AJ Price and he's got his arms around his shoulder and like AJ Price isn't like short by any stretch. He's like, you know, a, a normal sized like, you know, point guard and yeah yeah and he's just like absolutely dwarfed by Thibi like it looks tiny by comparison it was it was pretty funny just to sort of remember oh yeah that's right Hashim Thibi was awesome and he was he was gigantic just absolutely oh, an yeah. enormous human being yeah it was crazy seeing I'm sure you probably saw him around campus a couple of times your freshman year but just uh, walk just walking around campus and like walking past him I was like I'm five and I was like up to his waist. So it was like, it was incredible just how big he was. And he was also from his freshman year to his junior year, he also got pretty muscular too. And, and that's, I think that's part of why he was so dominant his junior years. He didn't really get pushed around by anybody. I think Dewan Blair from Pitt was really the only player who could get into the beat and like move him and kind of control the game when he was going against the beat uh, offensively. Um, so I, I think that that's, you know, he was stronger than he gets credit for. He was definitely more athletic than he gets credit for. And he was also a little more skilled. Like, he shot almost 70% from the free throw line. He was he had a pretty good form, pretty good touch. Um, there, was, there was a reason why he went second in the NBA draft that year. It wasn't like, at the time, people thought that was a crazy pick. It was pretty standard that Blake Griffin goes first, they take the beat, and then after that, you know, who knows. And then, of course, you have... James Harden and Steph Curry come off the board after that. So in retrospect, it looks horrible. But at the time, that was like 
the consensus pick at number two. Yeah, I think actually, I think the beat probably has Johnny Flynn to thank uh, in large part for what ended up happening because he, uh, you know, going number two in that draft looks horrible. But it looks a little less horrible when the Minnesota Twins takes Johnny Flynn and Ricky Rubio back to back over Steph Curry. So now when we think about that draft, usually that's the first one we think about in terms of just like, oh, whoa, what an epic fail that was before people are like, oh, yeah, wait, the the Grizzlies could have had James Harden instead of, you know, Hashim to beat. But, you know, yeah, I don't know what I don't know what why Johnny Flynn didn't pan out because you watch him in this game and he really reminded me of Chris Paul. Like he just had he was. He had the game under complete command. He could shoot. Um, I mean, he wasn't that big. Maybe that that hurt him his size. But I I was surprised that he didn't amount to anything as a pro. And obviously, you go you go Rubio, Johnny Flynn, and then actually the T Wolves had another uh, first round pick later, and they took Ty Lawson. So they took three point guards in the first round, and none of them were Steph Curry, which is just absolutely killer oh my god you're right i'd forgotten about ty lawson that's crazy actually you're right it was ruby they did take rubio first so flynn was the guy they're like all right you know what we could take johnny flynn from syracuse or we could take the steph curry kid from davidson yeah let's go with johnny flynn and yeah. uh yeah that- it's, just, it's funny i mean you can do this with almost every draft oh nine's funny in particular because i mean curry's gonna end up curry and harden are probably two they're gamers and then the beat and Flynn are like they're not only they're like colossal busts like they did absolutely nothing in the NBA so it's like you have both extremes there but like that's it's hard it's hard to evaluate guys coming out of college I'm sure at the time most people thought Johnny Flynn was going to be a 10-year starter in the NBA yeah I mean if he had if he had turned out to be that it wouldn't be as egregious at least because like obviously you know you'd still look back and be like geez like we really missed on Steph Curry but you know if the guy you picked was still your starting point guard for 10 years it's you know not the end of the world at least then you can say all right well at least we like you know could have been worse in in this case in this case it really couldn't have been worse it was you know yeah that that gm what is it what con is that his name that dude that's gonna follow that guy forever yeah that's a rough one that's rough (laughs) so uh anything i guess um so normally we i would ask about favorite sequences but this game didn't really have very many There, there weren't a lot of big runs it was kind of just like you know the the handful of buzzer beater attempts at the end of the uh, you know each overtime. You know there's Devendorf's thing, which is you know kind yeah, of kind of for me. For me, that Devendorf sequence would be the most memorable. That's what, when I thought about that game without watching it back. That's the one I remembered the most, um, just because it was uh, that was like the most the single most um, dramatic moment of that game, I think, and. Obviously, me being in the shot probably is a reason why I remember it, too. Well, if it makes uh, you feel any better, I actually had to look pretty hard to find you because uh, I was like, I, I, I've i always kind of heard just, you know, because, you know, people at the Daily Campus were like, oh, yeah, I remember when Duffy was on, you know, the Big East tournament. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. So Duffy's supposed to be in the shot. And it took me a couple of rewatches and a couple of rewinds. And eventually I was like, oh, there he is. And now, now it's all I can yeah, see. That's a good, yeah, that's a good it's, it's not, I'm not, not front and center. You have to kind of look for me. So it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's just a funny reaction that, that happened. I'm sure at the time, like I'm I'm not, I don't even know if I had my laptop out because this was, this was 2009 and we didn't have a paper cause we were on spring break. So I was writing something only for the internet, but I had no deadline. So I was probably just sitting there eating popcorn, drinking a coffee, watching the game. And then everyone else around me, all the other professional beat writers are, like panicking on deadline and you know they're they're missing all their print deadlines and that's really at that point that's like the primary function of their job is is the print newspaper still in 2009 i'm sure people had blogs and stuff but that wasn't like people didn't start writing first for online until i don't know like 2011 2012 or so so everyone around me was like (laughs) although they were in awe of the game i'm sure they were like well, this kind of sucks for my work because I'm not going to be able to file a story right now. So one of the other memories I have is just being able to, because I was with the daily campus and, you know, just the way things were, I wasn't yet, you know, working professionally. Um, Just being able to enjoy the whole thing without having the absolute stress of deadline, which is, I mean, late basketball games are tough to cover because so much changes so fast and you're just writing the whole time that you feel like, you miss a lot of the action, but fortunately for me, at least I 
got to watch this without missing much. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty cool. And I think you, you mentioned to me before we started recording that you pretty much are subsisting off of coffee the whole time to get you through because I don't know about you, but I mean, I was watching at home and by the time it was over, I was just like, oh, thank God it's finally over. I can just go to bed now. I was I wasn't even that mad. I was just like, oh, just like just kill me now if this game goes to another <laughs> overtime. That might be how some of the UConn players felt like you, there were points where they were just like laying on the floor as the buzzer sounded and they were going to another overtime and they were like, ah, do I really like you're watching them and you're thinking Jeff Adrian's probably thinking like, ah, do I really have to get up and do this again? Like this is getting ridiculous. Um, I'm sure that basically everyone had the same mindset that, that you did toward the end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have the box score open by any chance? I don't, but I can open it real quick. Let's yeah. See. Why don't you Why don't you do that? Because this is this game has one of the most hilarious box scores like of all time. Some of the numbers that are here are just stupid. Like, <laughs> while you're getting it ready, let me just kind of run through a few. Um, so minutes played, uh, we have um, well, no no shortage of people playing more than forty minutes, which is highly unusual for UConn. Uh, your Iron Man is um, is AJ Price, sixty two minutes played. You have oh Jeff Adrian, 56 minutes played. Uh, Hashim Thabit, he plays 53 minutes. Kemba, he had played 52. Um, Stanley Robinson, 48. And that's like 48 up until the third overtime. So like he, he probably would have made it into the 60s if he'd stuck around. Craig Ostry, 45 minutes. Craig Ostry, who went 2 for 13 from the field, 2 for 10 from 3, and had 8 total points in 45 minutes. Like... Man. Wow. <laughs> Kemba, not much yeah. better. He was four for 18, 0 for 7 from three, like you said. He, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, no, not, none of that's what you want. Uh, for Syracuse, uh, Johnny Flynn almost goes the entire way. He's 67 out of 70 possible minutes. He is the uh, game's leading scorer with 34 points. He was a perfect 16 for 16 from the line. And, um, yeah, he had six steals and uh, seven assists for good measure. So, um, you know, that, that was pretty good. Uh, Paul Harris, um, you know, we kind of got on his case in the fourth overtime, but he, he ultimately was good. He had 13 for 14 from the, th- uh, for the free throw line, which was huge. 22 total rebounds, 29 points. He played 56 minutes. Um, Devendorf looks, oh yeah, he, Devendorf got over 60. He was 61 minutes. Uh, uh, Andy Routens was 50. And, um, actually it looks like they did a better job of keeping guys fresh otherwise, uh, or they just fouled out sooner. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just, um, yeah, those, these are not normal numbers. Not, not, not what you would normally see. No, there's a lot. You could, you could pick through the box score for probably 10 minutes and come up with like pretty interesting stats. I'm just look at like Kemba had two assists in 52 minutes. I mean, that's just absolutely brutal. Um, I know that AJ is the guy handling the ball most of the time, but like two assists in 52 minutes for a guy who's basically a point guard, is that's rough. Um, you know, as I said before, the guards, Kemba, AJ, and Craig Oshry, five for 30 from three. Um, the free throw shooting from UConn stands out, 24, 42, 57% for the game. Um, and then on the other side, like, yeah, Johnny Flynn, 16 for 16 from the line. And I think Paul Harris, most of his numbers actually came in the final three overtimes. He had 15 points and 13 boards, um, seven on the offensive end in overtimes, uh, five, four, and six. So that's when Paul Harris really started to cook. And he, I mean, he probably padded some of his stats with missed layups and offensive rebounds, and he finally finishes. So might look a little inf- he he was a big difference down the stretch for Syracuse. It was a little bit of a Ricky Davis performance, but it was an effective right. one nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a nice reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Celt- old school Celtics for you. Um, you know, one more from this Syracuse. Uh, their free throw shooting actually was not all that great in regulation, but once they get to overtime, they're twenty three for twenty six, eighty eight point five percent. I mean. You know, if, if there's any reason why Syracuse won the game, it's really probably that as much as anything else. I mean, they, they made the shots they needed to come back. They made the shots they needed to keep UConn at bay in the sixth. And then, you know, once, you, you know, if the team's making all their free throws late, it's kind of hard to come back from that. So that's kind of all they, all they wrote there. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So um, broadcast beefs. Uh, so I really like the broadcast from this game. Uh, Sean McDonough, Jay Billis, and Bill Raftery were uh, one of my favorite uh, commentating teams ever. 
And, um, you know, there wasn't really a lot like of notable things that happened in terms of like things they said that was, you know, sometimes you watch these games and some, somebody says something really goofy or makes a really wild take or there's some kind of like, you know, promo for some TV show that's like really dumb or hilarious in retrospect. I, I thought this broadcast was pretty clean. There wasn't really too much that was like, I, you know, made me stop and be like, well, hold on a second. What, what happened? What, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, that's a. I mean that's the best trio in college basketball right there. So no surprise, great great broadcast team. It was just funny rewatching it. It was funny to hear like in the second overtime you hear McDonough uh, Rafferty like referencing like oh man like these guys are so exhausted. How are they gonna have anything left for next? The winner is not gonna have anything left for next game. And you're just thinking like well little do these guys know we still have an hour and twenty minutes to go in this game. It's gonna get a lot worse from here. Oh yeah. So that was. Yeah, that, that stood out to me. But other than that, like, no beefs with the broadcasts. Those guys are awesome. Sean McDonough did make a cool observation. He uh, talked, I guess Andy Routon's dad, Leo, played for Syracuse back in the day. And he uh, took part in the three-overtime Big East Championship game against Villanova in 1981. So there was a point kind of when everybody started gets all stir crazy and whatever, they started being like, you know, Leo, your son's a better shooter. Admit it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I remember that part. Yeah, they, they they also had one nice stat that I was not aware of. I think Stanley Robinson had a big three at one point, and they said he was only one for sixteen. I think on the season before that three. Oh, that's right. I had yeah. no idea that he was that. I mean, you knew he wasn't a great three point shooter, and he didn't take a ton of them. But I had no idea he was only one for sixteen on the entire season. Yeah, and that three came like in a pretty big spot too. Um, I'm just kind of try to see if I can find it in my notes. But I remember him hitting that shot and being like, "Oh my god!" Like they're definitely going to win. I think it might have been at the end of the third. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I, 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 I think it was in. I think it was in regulation actually, or maybe it was the, the first overtime. But it was it was early. Um, but yeah, I had no, I had no idea that he. I guess thinking back on it, because. In his first, well, that would have been Stanley Robinson's junior year, right? I uh, yes, yes, yeah. uh, because yeah, no, he, he was back the next year too. I think he was not. I mean, he was never a great shooter, but I don't think he was as shy with taking threes in his first couple of years. And maybe for whatever reason, he just lost confidence in his third year as a three point shooter and just didn't didn't really take him a lot. Um, but that one, I mean, it looked pretty smooth. It was like a step back, um, swished it like good form. So it's surprising that he didn't really do any of that throughout his junior year. I guess so. I found it, by the way. He hit it with a 123 to play in the first overtime. It put UConn up 80 to 76, drew a timeout, and got a big old UCONN chant. So you know, when he hit that shot, I, I in the moment, I was like, oh, yeah, they're, they're definitely going to win now. And then, you know, an hour and a half later. So, so yeah. be it. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, let's uh, wrap this up because we've we've been at this for a while. Um, so you know, every every episode we ask, uh, you know, who's the top dog? You know, who is the guy who uh, quote unquote won the game? And uh, for our purposes, why don't we start with a UConn player, and then if you have any thoughts on Syracuse, since they did literally win the game, we can get to that. Yeah. But who was the the nice. top dog for UConn? UConn, I will go Stanley, I guess, just because he played. I mean, he played above what he normally does, and he's probably the only guy on the UConn side that you can say that in this game, um, that this was one of his better games. So I'll go Stanley Robinson on UConn. I'm sure, like, most of the time, you're top, you know, you're, you're, you're only really going to be highlighting wins for UConn, so you're not going to have the actual top dog come from the opposing team. But Johnny Flynn, I thought, controlled the game from the minute Hashim left. So I'll take Johnny Flynn from Syracuse, and then uh, if I can add a co-top dog just Jim Beheim for getting this one over Calhoun because he doesn't have many to hang over Calhoun's head but I'm sure it was nice for Beheim to win this one that's a very magnanimous of you I'm sure our listenership won't won't appreciate that take but it's pretty defensible I mean you know know, (laughs) Calhoun has the three rings he has the the seven uh the seven Big East championships uh you know tournament championships he's got all these great moments Beheim has you know, he has this and he has a, you know, Carmelo Anthony's, uh, you know, title, you know, run. So we'll, uh, we'll let him have this one, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree though about Stanley though. He was, he was awesome. This was the, probably the best game he ever played at UConn, you know, 29 points, uh, 14 rebounds, I believe. Um, 
and uh, you know just a whole whole bunch of like typical Stanley Robinson highlights with your windmill dunk and your alley oops and the three like kind of just pulls a three out of nowhere to looks like give them the the lead for good even if it didn't work out that way you know it was a it was a very he was such a fun player he was, I, I you forget about just like you know the whole Stanley Robin experience what a treat he was to watch when he was on definitely one of the best dunkers in UConn history oh absolutely. All right. Well, why don't we wrap this up? So, Kevin, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, while I got you, do you have anything you'd like to plug or any like social media people can reach you at? No, not really. Kind of laying low on social media these days, but I'll I'll chime in every once in a while. Um, I'm at Kevin R. Duffy, so if anyone wants to talk UConn hoops or anything like that, uh, feel free to tweet at me. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on. We'll we'll have you back on at some point in the future. We can talk more 2009 team. We can do the 2014 team, which I know you also covered. And, uh, you know, whatever else you want. So thanks so much for coming on. And uh, everybody, thanks so much for listening. I'm really excited to keep putting these together for you. And uh, we'll have another episode out next Tuesday. So uh, anyone who wants to reach out or offer feedback, you can follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo. That's M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. And uh, my DMs are open. And uh, we have an email set up for the show. YesUConnPodcast at gmail.com. So uh, please let us know if you have any thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, so thanks again for all your support and uh, we'll, we'll see you all later.